This message was shared from the pulpit at Good News Baptist Church in Chesapeake, Virginia. For more information, visit us online at goodnewsbaptist.org. So if you remember last week, we started with this problem of evil, and uh, it's a a pretty in-depth topic. We started looking at this verse from Isaiah chapter 45, uh, verses 5 through 7, where we looked at specifically this phrase, I form the light and create darkness. I make peace and create evil. And as we looked at that, we asked, well, what is the problem of evil? And uh, as we considered, it is a problem, and it is one of the biggest hang-ups that people have because uh, as you evangelize, as you talk to people about your God, uh, it's, it's hard to get past the fact that uh, staring them in the face is a, is a world that is, is messy, and, uh, and, and it's hard for them to reconcile some of those things. But we'll look in, uh, at this problem of evil. Uh, we'll see maybe a little more clarity this evening, I hope, on the biblical answers to, uh, to this problem of evil, which if I could just summarize the problem of evil is if there is a God and if he is good and all-powerful, then why doesn't he do something about evil? So that's the problem of evil. And we looked at last week how some would say just the very fact that evil exists in the world precludes the existence of God, that God could not possibly exist if evil exists. They could not coexist together. So in doing that, we looked at this word, theodicy, which is really a vindication of the divine attributes. We're asking for a justification. If, there, if God does exist, how do we reconcile that with the existence of evil in the world? And we had just gotten into this common solution, one, the first one that people explain. They say, well, evil is unreal. It's just a figment of your imagination. It's really not out there. And I think we, uh, we were able to not spend too much time in, uh, in putting that one to rest, that it's not very practical for us. Uh, and so we moved on quickly, and we'll pick it up here with the second argument, that evil is just good in disguise. Evil is just good in disguise. Now, this may sound uh, very pious, and uh, this may sound like, well, I'm just going to uh, uh, just look at this and say, well... You know, I'm going to just find the good in everything. In fact, today, I, I've been in a training uh, this week on uh, operational stress and how, we, uh, how the psychologists tell us we should handle it. And, uh, and one of the things they said is just anything that happens in life, just respond with, it's good. That'll only get you so far. Uh, because while we, uh, we would like to say, oh, that's good, there's just some things that are bad. From God, this is what the charge is, that from God's perspective, all things are good, even though they seem bad from our point of view. That's what this idea is saying, that, hey, you know, God sees everything, and, and that's, it's actually good. If you could just see it from the mind of God, and that's just a very gross misinterpretation of Romans 8.28. Because the problem is, Romans 8.28 does not say that all things are good. It only says that all things work together for good. And a lot of people leave this out to a very exclusive group. To the the elect, to those who are the called. 
It's for a select group of people. Not everything works together for good. And I've even found myself in the past week as, I, uh, as I've been counseling and some who are, are heartbroken, I, I want to be very careful to say, hey, you know, it's all going to work out. I don't know how that's going to work out. I don't want to give false promises. Evil out of which God brings good is still real evil. Remember Joseph? He still had a horrible life. From the betrayal of Judas comes the redemptive act of the cross. But that in no way minimizes the wickedness of Judas's act. So, if evil is good, if it's just good in disguise, then it's not evil. We could talk ourselves in circles all, all night. If evil's good, then it's not evil, and evil just doesn't exist. This idea that evil is good fails because it obscures the real difference between good and evil. It is an implicit denial of the reality of evil. There are bad things out there. And, and people who endure some very traumatic experiences in their life, Especially those that are unsaved, if you just look at them and say, you know, just buck up, this is really good for you. You could really damage them. So this evil is just good in disguise, I think doesn't give us a very good solution. But that's some people's take on it. Evil is just good in disguise. Well, then let's move on to this one. Our common solution number three. And if you're writing there, those down, I think I gave you enough space to write. Now, this is dualism, or what I call traditional dualism. And dualism has a variety of meanings depending on the context you use it. It has a philosophical meaning, has a spiritual meaning. There was a heresy that, uh, that said that, uh, you know, we believe that, not, this is not the heresy, uh, we believe that Jesus was 100% God and 100% man. Well, there was a heresy that said, well, Jesus was man and God, and they just were at conflict with each other. That's not this. There's also the dualism in philosophy, which is similar to this idea of good and evil, or in, in another theology, that God versus Satan. That there's a good power out there, and there's the evil power out there. This is Star Wars stuff, okay? This is the force is, is out there. And in traditional dualism of good versus evil, the charge is that God really wants good to happen. But that's Satan. He thwarts God's purposes, and he really wants evil. So you got God in his heaven, he wants good, and you got Satan who really wants to, to thwart God's plan. And often what we do is we fall into this trap and we say, well, Satan's just out to, to fight, to, he's just fighting me. And of course, that in some ways may be true, but we give way too much power to Satan. We gave, give way too much deference. God and Satan are not equals. God really does want good. But people would say, but Satan thwarts these purposes, and there exist two ultimate and opposing forces which are equal in power and eternality. They are not equal. What this view does is it lets God off the hook by making the existence of evil eternally independent of him. 
In other words, there's this force independent of God. And we got to be very careful when we ever take anything and make it independent of God. And I'll explain why. The problem with this idea is that it excludes the possibility of redemption of evil. In other words, if evil is equal in power to God, God really has no way to overcome it. Think about that. If good and evil are equal, who wins? One has to be more powerful. Also, it fails logically. God cannot be omnipotent. And what does omnipotent mean? All-powerful. He cannot be all-powerful if he is in true conflict with Satan. He cannot have two... We, can, we cannot have two absolute beings at the same time. It, you really, you can start getting dizzy if you think about this, but if you have two absolute powers, good and evil, they're equal. If you have two absolute powers, which one's absolute? Well, they can't both, it's an oxymoron to say two absolutes, because one has to be absolute. Absolutely. But it fails biblically. Satan is not equal in power to God. In fact, he's subject to God. Listen to this verse in Psalm 115.3. But our God is in the heavens. He hath done whatsoever he hath pleased. Psalm 135, verses 5 through 7. For I know that the Lord is great, the psalmist says, and that our Lord is above all gods. Whatsoever the Lord pleased, that did he in heaven and in earth, in the seas and all the deep places. He causeth the vapors to ascend from the ends of the earth. He maketh lightnings for the rain. He bringeth the wind out of his treasuries. Whatsoever the Lord pleased, that he did. That is absolute power. And do you remember Job chapter 1? Verses 9 through 12 tells us that Satan comes before God and answers the Lord and said, Doth Job fear God for naught? Hast thou not made an hedge about him and about his house and about all that he hath on every side? Thou hast blessed the work of his hands and his substance is increased in the land. But put forth thine hand now and touch all that he hath and he will curse thee to thy face. And the Lord said to Satan, Behold, all that he hath is in thy power. Listen to this. Only upon himself put not forth thine hand. So Satan went forth from the presence of the Lord. Satan obeyed. Why? Because God is absolute. So this isn't just a good versus evil dualism. In our world, people may look and say, there's a lot of good out there, and there's a lot of evil, and I just hope good wins out at the end. So this common solution of traditional dualism of good versus evil, it doesn't explain the problem of evil for us. Well, then how about this? Evil is complementary. Now, look at the spelling of complementary. It's the completion here. It's not evil tells you how wonderful your hair is, you know. 
It's evil, some of those compliments. Uh, this is complimentary. It completes. You say, how does evil complete? We must have evil, this argument says, in order to appreciate good. Now, there is a little bit of truth in this, but not enough to give us the problem, solve the problem for evil. And this is where the little bit of truth is, and I'll share it with you, and then we'll get and we'll, dis, we'll dismantle this. The, the truth is, we do not know ultimately what it means to have a holy God. The only, re, the only semblance of holiness that we know is the fact that we are unholy. There is obedience. We do not know true obedience, but we sure do know what disobedience is. So there is a little bit of truth in the fact that there are some things, especially about God, that we don't know or understand because we can only speak to them from the negative. You know, I cannot, I don't have the language as a, as a finite person to explain an infinite God. In fact, I can't even explain infinity, but I can tell you what it's not. This is not infinite here. So there's a little bit of truth, but let's dismantle this. Evil is complementary. We must have evil in order to appreciate good. Here's what the, what the argument is. To appreciate health, I must first understand sickness. To appreciate righteousness, I must first understand wickedness. It appears weighty. It appears good on the surface because we do experience the intensity of appreciation by way of such contrasting experiences. Hey, when I'm starved, I appreciate a meal much more than when I'm full. Because there is that contrast. And I do enjoy being better after I've been sick. Blow your mind. We do have a level of appreciation. But here's the problem. To say that we must have evil in order to appreciate the good, if the experience of evil is necessary for the appreciation of good, think of it this way. Then God would have to experience evil in order to appreciate himself. But we look at verses like 1 John 1, 5 through 9. In 1 John 1, 5 through 9, this is what the Bible says. This, then, is the message which we have heard of him and declare unto you, that God is light, and in him is no darkness at all. Now, unless we have a different definition of evil, I can equate evil with darkness here. If we say that we have fellowship with him and walk in darkness, we lie. And do not the truth. But if we walk in the light, as he is in the light, we have fellowship one with another, and the blood of Jesus Christ, his son, cleanses us from all sin. If we say that we have no sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. 
We cannot be cleansed of our unrighteousness from a God who is not righteous. Habakkuk 1.13, we looked at this verse last week. In this verse, it says again, Thou art of pure eyes than to behold evil, and canst not look on iniquity. So again, we see here that to say that God has to experience evil so he knows what good is, is heretical. This approach just really falls back onto another evil is really good in disguise. Hey, if you could just, uh, you, you, you got to have evil's good for you. It'll help you better appreciate good. But it doesn't make sense with what the Bible teaches about heaven and hell. Human experience one or the other only and eternally. And when we get to heaven, God's not going to say to us, well, hey, I got to first send you to hell so you can really appreciate heaven. Yeah. <laughs> if God needs evil to show good, then this is very important. Then God necessarily needs something outside of himself. And again, he's no longer independent. God depends on nothing. But while this presents a logically valid argument... It lacks soundness because experiencing evil is not necessarily to know good. If, think of it in this way, of, in this logical argument. If there is evil, this is what they're saying, if there is evil, we can know good. But another way of saying this is, I know good if and only if there is evil. Making evil necessary to good and if God is good, evil is necessary to God. You would also need to say that good is known only if one experiences evil. And that's what we know to be untrue. For if you had to experience evil in order to know good, then we would look at Adam and Eve in the garden. And we would say they, could, they, did, not have, they did not experience good at all. But yet, when God, created the, the, when God created the world, he looked at it and he said, and behold, it was very good. He did not have to subject them to evil for them to appreciate, let me go back, for them to know the good. But there is this idea of appreciation. In the military, we have, let me give an illustration on why it's crazy to think you have to experience something to, to appreciate it. So in the Navy, and I've only seen this in the Navy, there are certain things in my, in my military career that I just look back and I say, that was miserable. That was just not fun. And the gas chamber is one of them. You ever been in the gas chamber, Jerry? It's, it's miserable. And in, in Marines, we don't, they're not allowed to call it hazing. It's training. Uh, and so they, uh, they, they, they say, take your gas mask off, take a deep breath. And I'm like, but that's why the gas mask is there. You know, and they, you know, and so that's miserable. But the Navy takes it up a level. The Navy has this, what's called OC level two spray. It's pepper spray in your eyes. And they put you through this, this routine where they say, hey, we're going to spray it in your eyes, and then you're going to go and you're going to fight. And you want to show that you can fight 
while under duress. Now, the chaplain doesn't have to do this training. And the chaplain probably shouldn't do this training. But the chaplain loves his people. And so I was on a ship, and I said, hey, I'm going to experience this. You all experience this. I'm going to experience this. I will never experience that again. I mean, this chaplain, I don't know if I almost, I think I did lose my religion. I mean, it was, uh, it was painful. And I remember after it was over, they've got this hose, they're spraying it over. I'm over the side of the deck, and I just can't breathe, and uh, it was just miserable. But the reason why they say, they say, we, we want to be able to do it, but you also need to experience that, because if you ever have to pull the pepper spray and use it, then it may blow back in your face, and you've got to experience that. You know, I don't go shoot myself in the leg just so I know what that feels like. <laughs> we don't have to experience it. And in seriousness, some people will say, you know, hey, just go out and, and you need to really experience the evil of this world. And, and, and some people subject their children to some things. Say, hey, I just need them to, to know what the world, that's very dangerous. Amen. Now, I said we can appreciate it. We can. We can appreciate good, but we don't have to have evil to appreciate good. Evil may be sufficient to know good, but it's not necessary. In other words, you can know good without experiencing evil. This is what we read in Genesis chapter 2. And the Lord God planted a garden eastward in Eden, and there he put the man whom he had formed. And out of the ground made he the Lord God to grow every tree. Listen what the garden was for, this, for Adam and Eve, who had not experienced evil. Every tree that is pleasant to the sight and good for food, the tree of life also in the midst of the garden, and the tree of knowledge of good and evil. And then down in verse 25, and they were both naked, the man and his wife, and were not ashamed. They were innocent, and they were experiencing good. Now, I guarantee, when they were kicked out of the garden, they looked back and said, I don't realize how good we had it. <laughs> you can appreciate good, but we don't have to have evil. It's not enough to say evil. You have to have evil. It completes goodness. So we'll move on to our next uh, argument, number five. The argument is, well, evil is relative. Not evil relatives, that's true. But evil is relative. Evil is just relative. This is a very postmodern mindset. It's really not a theodicy. It doesn't justify anything. All it does is that it says, it should be no such thing, not not such thing. There is no such thing as good and evil. Only how you feel about it matters. It really just seeks to eliminate God. There are, only, there are only social convictions or preferences that masquerade as real values. The problem, though, is what does it mean that it matters how you feel about something? When we talk about what matters, we imply even by the use of that word, if, for example, say it, doesn't, it only matters how you feel, what we imply with the use of the word matters is that there is a standard of good and bad, right and wrong. For example, what of the teaching that terrorism, mass murder, genocide, infanticide, 
mass gassing of humans and bombings are all morally, they're just morally neutral because they're just a matter of perspective. Well, we'd be laughed. That's not true. First, 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 1-7 through seven says this, This know also, that in the last days perilous times shall come. For men shall be lovers of their own selves, covetous, boasters, proud, blasphemers, disobedient to parents, unthankful, unholy, without natural affection, truce breakers, false accusers, incontinent, fierce despisers of those that are good, traitors, heady, high-minded, lovers of pleasures more than lovers of God. Listen to this then. Having a form of godliness, but denying the power thereof, from such turn away. For of this sort they were, which creep into houses, lead captive silly women, laden with sin, led away with divers lusts, ever learning and never able to come to the knowledge of the truth. They fooled themselves. The Bible gives us this list of how people will be, but they never recognize it. There's no matter of relativity here. Well, they just didn't realize how bad they were. And so God will wink at that. Evil is not just relative. Isaiah 5.20 gives this warning. Woe unto them that call evil good and good evil, that put darkness for light and light for darkness, that put bitter for sweet and sweet for bitter. Woe unto them that are wise in their own eyes and prudent in their own sight. If you leave it to yourself, you will lead yourself wrong every time. Evil is not just relative. You can't make it right by just thinking it is right. So our final one, our final solution that we'll look at. We had traditional dualism where I said it's good versus evil, but Christians have even fallen into some of these where we have this Christian idea of dualism where there's the sovereignty of God versus man's free will. Notice I use verses there, not sovereignty of God and man's free will, because it is true, God is sovereign and man has a free will. But they are pitted together as this good versus evil, the sovereignty of God, and yet we do evil. This is the Christian compromise. It attempts to explain God's sovereignty and man's choice, that God created the world, but he didn't know or determine all the outcomes. God does not know the future. He can predict the future since he knows people so intimately. He's just giving an educated guess. Well, what's the problem with this? What of the teaching that Jesus was God's plan from before all time? What about the teaching of the Bible that God has all things in his hands? See, this view robs God of his glory. 1 Peter chapter 1, 19-20 says, But with the precious blood of Christ, as of a lamb without blemish and without spot, who verily was foreordained before the foundation of the world, but was manifest in these last times for you. God had a plan from before the foundation of the world. He's not in heaven wringing his hands. 
man, I've got really good plans. I hope, I hope they'll fall in line. And even we fall into it and say, well, God has his plan B for us. He has his, sometimes we use words like his permissive will. God has a will, and God's will be done. And so we see that he has this plan. Ephesians chapter 1, verse 3 through 6, narrows it down even more. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who hath blessed us with all spiritual blessings in heavenly places in Christ, according as he hath chosen us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and without blame before him in love having predestinated us unto the adoption of children by Jesus Christ to himself, according to the good pleasure of his will, to the praise of the glory of his grace, wherein he hath made us accepted in the beloved. Chosen from the, before the foundation of the world. Now, I can't explain how we can have a free will, and God has his sovereignty. The best answer I've ever heard comes from Charles Spurgeon, who says that if the, 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 uh, uh, you've got the sovereignty of God, and someone asks him, how do you reconcile the sovereignty of God and the free will of man? And he says, why do I have to reconcile anything that should be holding hands as friends? I just know God is sovereign, and I know I still am responsible for the decisions I make. They aren't competing together. God is in control. So our problem remains here with us. Our problem remains. Now, we've got just a few more minutes. Go ahead and just take one, pass it out, and we're going to hit, this is part two, which we should have started 20 minutes ago. So we presented the problem. We, we haven't reached a solution yet of this problem of evil. But I think the Bible will help us here. I'm confident the Bible will give us the answer, but it may not still content you because, well, we'll, we'll, we'll figure this out. The problem remains. How can evil originate with a good God who created the world? We cannot see why our world, with all its ills, would be better than others we think we can imagine. Or what, in any detail, is God's reason for permitting a given specific and appalling evil? Not only can we not see this, we can't think of any very good possibilities. And think of some of the possibilities that maybe you've heard of, how, of what, what, how we could get rid of evil. Well, maybe if God would just intervene when something evil is about to happen. If God would just keep it from happening. If God intervened every time something evil would happen, think of this, evil would not exist. Because God would intervene. You would never experience anything. Well, okay, well, then maybe, what if, what if God, uh, uh, you know, just would do some miracles a little more often? Now, the, God does intervene at times, and there are miracles, but God has a plan. And when God intervenes, God is not going to stop an evil 
by creating a more, e more evil. For example, we have a custom in my house when my children come to me and say, Dad, my hand hurts. I'll say, oh, what happened? I don't know, it hurts right here. I can cut your hand off, and you won't feel that hurt anymore. But, Dad, I'll not have a hand. Yeah, there's some things you have to give up. How bad does it hurt? You say, you're a horrible father. I know, I am. <laughs> but you, we, could, we can really make evil worse, right? And God could intervene, and, uh, and he could take away, sometimes he could take away the pain, but it would be a worse pain that it would, re would replace it. So we can't imagine, we don't really have very good possibilities for God. So here I must say that most attempts to explain why God permits evil, these theodicies that we just went through, as we may call them, they're tepid, shallow, and frivolous. So let's go to the Bible. What is the solution? In one sense, there certainly are answers in the Bible about this. But in another sense, there is not a crisp, single-sentence verse that will answer what is that and tie this up in a bow for us and say, here it is. This is why evil exists in the world. We just don't have a perfect resolution on this issue as Christians. But what I can do, however, is provide the biblical perspective for the problem of evil. So as we've talked about before, our knowledge is limited. Our minds are fallen. But just because we cannot understand some real things fully does not mean we are unable to understand those things truly. For example, the Trinity. I cannot explain that fully, but I can tell you it's true. I can't explain the predestined uh, will of God. But the Bible says it. It's true. There's a lot of things I cannot fully explain. But if we're waiting for that 100% solution on everything, we will leave disappointed. We don't have a solution in that sense that we can make perfect sense of evil, suffering, and pain in the world. And it's okay to stop and step back and say, I don't know. I don't know why we have a pandemic right now. I mean, we can argue about that. But am I in the place of God? I don't know why people die when they do and at the ages they do. The complete full answer has not been revealed to us by God. So we can trust in a God who has not revealed this to us, but that's the key. We have to trust someone who hasn't revealed to us everything. Can we trust him? Yes, absolutely. We trust God because of what we do know and what God has revealed to us. This is an imperfect example, but let me share it with you. So a father tells his son who's playing in the yard to drop down on all fours and crawl through the mud towards him. He says to his son, get down and crawl towards me. The son wonders why and asks, Dad, why? But the father demands strict obedience. And so the son obeys and does so. 
And when he gets to his father's feet, his father picks him up, turns around and shows him a deadly snake that was hanging in the tree above where the child had been standing. One day we will be in God's presence. And we will see things from a different perspective. And we shall know, even as also we are known, and I believe we'll, have, we'll understand things more fully. But until then, his thoughts are not our thoughts, and his ways are not our ways. But we can trust God as he has been revealed to us. We can trust him as he has revealed to us. And the first thing I want you to see there is God is the all-powerful. The reason why we can trust him, this is what's been revealed. God is the all-powerful governor of his universe. God is the all-powerful governor of his universe. Psalm 115.3, we already read it. Let me say it again. Our God is in his heaven and does whatever he pleases. Remember the book in Genesis, chapter 1? God spoke, and the worlds were revealed, were created. Colossians chapter 1, verses 16 through 7. If you look at that, Colossians 1, chapter 16, 7, it says this. For by him were all things created that are in heaven, and that are in earth, visible and invisible, whether they be thrones or dominions, principalities or powers, all things were created by him and for him. And he is before all things, and by him all things consist. That, verse 17, is an a priori argument. In other words, you can't have this without first having something else. And he says, God, the writer says, God is before all things. All this stuff around you would not exist without him. He is the all-powerful governor of his universe. Not only is the all-powerful governor of his universe, we, it's been revealed to us through the word of God that God is in control of every aspect of his creation. He didn't just create it, but he is an active and involved governor. He is still in control. He didn't just create it and say, hey, go and let's see what happens. I'll put the world in motion and we'll just let it go from there. He is in control of every aspect of his creation. In Ephesians chapter 1, it says this in verse 11. In whom also we have obtained an inheritance, being predestinated according to the purpose of him who worketh all things. Listen, who does he go to? After the counsel of his own will. He worketh all things after the counsel of his own will. He is not dependent on anyone. God is in control of every aspect of his creation. Psalm chapter 33. Psalm chapter 33. The psalmist says in, uh, in verse 13, Psalm 33. For the Lord looketh from heaven and beholdeth all the sons of men. From the place of his habitation, he looketh upon all the inhabitants of the earth. 
He is in control of every aspect of his creation. In verse 15, he says, He fashioneth their hearts alike. He considereth all their works. He created us. He controls us. God is in control of every aspect of his creation. Number three, this is where it starts getting a little more challenging. We're told God orchestrates the sins of man to glorify himself. He orchestrates the sins of man to glorify himself. Let's walk through this. We begin in Exodus chapter 4. Exodus chapter 4. Exodus chapter 4. Before I get there, I just want to share. Uh, last week we talked about this, and when we got home, when I got home, I, I got an email. Uh, with this, with that was very much in line with this, with this thought uh, that uh, that God uses things that we would think are just completely uh, un- uncommon. And so the Wideners, uh, Bill Widener, email email. He said it reminded him of this verse in Leviticus fourteen thirty four, which says, "And I put the plague of leprosy in a house of the land of your possession." We're now talking about God doing things, orchestrating things, even using evil to accomplish his will. But in Exodus chapter 4, this is what we read in verse 21, Exodus 4, 21. Listen, and the Lord said unto Moses, when thou goest to return into Egypt, see that thou do all those wonders before Pharaoh, which I have put in thine hand, but... I will harden his heart, that he shall not let the people go. God says, I am going to harden Pharaoh's heart that he disobeys me. Deuteronomy chapter 2, when Moses is writing, and he's reminiscing back on that time in, uh, in, uh, in Egypt, and as he led them out, he says, But Sion, king of Heshbon, would not let us pass by him, for the Lord thy God hardened his spirit and made his heart obstinate, and he might that he might deliver him into thine hand as appeareth this day. I'm sorry, that's when he's talking about these these kings there in the land of Canaan. But he uses the same terminology he used in Exodus when he said, God is hardening their heart. In Romans chapter 9, verse 18. Romans 9, verse 18, you say, Well, that's the Old Testament. Certainly, uh, God worked differently back then, but in Romans 9, 18, listen to this. It says, Therefore hath he mercy on whom he will have mercy, and whom he will he hardeneth. Joshua chapter 11, verse 20, we go back into the Old Testament. Joshua 11, verse 20. For it was of the Lord to harden their hearts, that they should come against Israel in battle, that he might destroy them utterly. He orchestrated their disobedience so that he could destroy them. And that they might have no favor, but that he might destroy them as the Lord commanded Moses. 
Proverbs 21.1. We've got to be careful about what we say about those in authority. For the king's heart is in the hand of the Lord. As the rivers of water, he turneth it whithersoever he will. So we see again that God orchestrates the sins of man to glorify himself. John 6, verse 7. Another example in the New, in the New Testament. John 6, verse 7. That's not the right verse. But it talks about uh, uh, when God, or when Jesus, he says, Hey, uh, I have been given all these, uh, uh, these disciples, and one, I've chosen them, and one is a devil. He picked one, knowing full well what Judas was going to do. John 17, verse 12. In John 17, verse 12, we see that while I was with them in, those, in, this, in the world, I kept them in thy name. Those that thou gavest me I have kept, and none of them is lost, but the son of perdition. Again, this is talking about Judas. The son of perdition, that the scripture might be fulfilled. And in John chapter 19, verse 8, we see the example of Pilate. When Pilate therefore heard that saying, he was the more afraid, and went again into the judgment hall, and saith unto Jesus, Whence art thou? But Jesus gave him no answer. Then said Pilate unto him, Speakest thou not unto me? Knowest thou not that I have power to crucify thee and have power to release thee? Jesus answered, Thou couldst have no power at all against me, except it were given thee from above. Therefore he, hath delivered me, therefore he that delivered me unto thee hath the greater sin. Again, we see that God put Pilate exactly where he wanted him. And he said, hey, this power has been given to you for a purpose. God orchestrates the sins of man to glorify himself. But, but, God never blameworthy of the evil that occurs. You say, well, if he orchestrates it, don't, doesn't, the, doesn't the blame rest on him? James chapter 1 says it like this. In James 1 verses 3, uh, James verses 13, I'm sorry, James 1 13, it says, Let no man say when he is tempted, I am tempted of God. For God cannot be tempted with evil, neither tempteth he any man. Every man is tempted when he is drawn away of his own lust and enticed. God is never blameworthy for the evil that occurs. Those who commit the evil are to blame. For God is good and holy, and he hates evil. Revelation 4.8, day and night, these creatures around the throne of God never stop saying, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty, who was and is and is to come. God is holy. And we cannot point our finger at him and lay, it at, and lay the blame at his feet. For he is a holy God. So God judges us. We do not judge God. Remember the story of Job? When Job thought he could 
judge God, and God said, where were you when I created the, the worlds? We don't put God on the dais and, and, and say, you need to hold yourself accountable to us. Romans chapter 9, let me read this verse to you. In chapter 9, or verse 19, Thou wilt say then unto me, Why doth he yet find fault? For who hath resisted his will? Nay, but, O man, who art thou that repliest against God? Shall the thing formed say to the thing that formed, say to him that formed it, Why hast thou made thee, me thus? Hath not the potter power over the clay of the same lump to make one vessel unto honor and unto another dishonor? What if God, willing to show his wrath and to make his power known, endured with much long suffering the vessels of wrath fitted for to, to destruction, and that he might make known the riches of his glory on the vessels of mercy, which he had afore prepared unto glory? We don't judge God. He judges us. And God will use evil for an ultimate good purpose. A greater good, if we could say it like that. We may not now fully understand what this is. Oh, now I'm not talking about a utilitarian concept of the greater good for humanity. I'm talking about the good that only he knows. And will reveal to us in his time. In Genesis 50, verse 20, this is what Joseph was saying to his brothers. Hey, you meant it to me for, to me for evil, but God meant it for good. To save much people alive. Again, Romans 8, 28. All things work together for good. To them that love God, to them who are the called according to his purpose. God's ultimate purpose is not to provide happiness for man but rather to glorify himself. Man's chief end is to glorify God and enjoy him forever. So, we're going to stop it there. We do have to finish this last part. We'll do it in a couple weeks when we come back. So, uh, save your copies. Uh, and we'll, we'll pick that up because we, we're in the biblical conundrum that we've been revealed some things... But we're going to pick it up next time with the biblical solution. The biblical solution where we're, we're told that some things here we can, we've been revealed, but now we're going to see how we can trust those things. And we'll pick that up next week. It'll, it'll or two weeks. It'll be quick. We'll finish it. And then we're going to move on. And then our next topic will be, after we finish that, the reliability of Scripture. The reliability of Scripture. We started with how man is not thinking. And we move from there and we've talked about the existence of God. And if God exists, then what do we do with this problem of evil? And now that we've accomplished that, or we're going to look and say, well, evil is with us. God can use it. God has a plan. But we only know that because the Bible tells us that. So how do we trust the Bible? And if, you, if you've ever had a conversation with someone often it gets into, they, they go on these rabbit trails. They'll say, wait, how can you trust the Bible? I mean, because it was written by, it was written so long ago. And, and you know, there's a lot of, of books that they threw out that are very important. All of a sudden, those are important, but these aren't. And so they set themselves up as the, uh, the judge of which ones are important. And, and so we're going to look at how the Scripture was canonized and how we got what we got. 
and how we do have the complete Word of God. We'll look at the reliability of Scripture. We'll finish up this, uh, this problem evil, move on into the reliability of Scripture two weeks from tonight. Dear Heavenly Father, thank you for this time. Lord, I pray that we would, if all else, if nothing else is remembered, Lord, help us to just remember that you are God, you are good, and we can trust you. And we can look around us, and we can become so distracted by everything we see going on. And we can wring our hands and say, God, times are getting bad. Father, I pray it's in those times that we will look up for our redemption draws nigh. Lord, bless us as we leave here. Watch over us. Keep us safe as we travel home. And Father, if evil befalls us, I pray that we would continue to look to you and trust you. Shall we not receive good at the hand of God and not receive evil? Father, if the rain falls on the just and the unjust. And so, Father, if evil befalls us, Lord, may we keep our focus on you. May we trust you. And may we glorify you and enjoy you forever. I pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Toward the hope of our high calling, toward the promise we've received. Thank you for listening. If you have questions about your relationship with God or you would like to know more about the ministry of Good News Baptist Church, please visit us online at goodnewsbaptist.org or call us at 757-488-3241. We encourage you to share this message with others. We trust your heart was challenged as you listened and God's Word has had an impact on your life as together we strive to show forth the path of life. Press on.